Let's pray together. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord God, for allowing us to worship you in spirit and in truth, Lord God. And thank you now for this time, our time looking at your word, Father, uh, with our hope to see you, Lord, to see you, Lord, to be changed by this seeing of you, Lord God. Would you please open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law, Lord God. Would you please, Lord, by your spirit, make this a divine communication. You know this preacher and his weakness. You know each heart here and what they need, Father God. Would you please be at work fulfilling those needs? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. People are afraid. It's not hard for us to notice. Um, I feel a little constrained here. Okay, there we go. Sorry about that. Um, we see it in our own hearts. Uh, we easily observe it in others. Um, that we're a frightened race doesn't change. It's been this way forever. What we're afraid of does change, though. Uh, so Chapman University, um, local college here in Orange, uh, they do regular surveys on the fears of Americans. I found what seemed to be the latest one from 2021. Over 50% of those surveyed uh, were very afraid or afraid of the following things. Number one, leading the pack was corrupt government officials. Maybe not your fear, but possibly. Followed by people I love dying, a loved one contracting COVID, people I love becoming seriously ill, widespread civil unrest, a pandemic or major epidemic, and you can understand why in 2021 that's on the list, economic slash financial collapse, and cyber terrorism. Those were the top fears of Americans. Uh, these are very real fears, some of which have could have uh, terrible uh, consequences upon us and the ones we love. Uh, many of us share some of these fears with many, many Americans, apparently. And all of us have other fears that grip our hearts. We fear losing our job. We fear getting a job when we're done with school. We fear broken relationships or no relationship, that important relationship at all. Because we fear these because these sort of dangers threaten our peace, they threaten our comfort, they threaten our joy. We fear nuclear attack and criminal violence and accidents, cancer and heart disease and COVID because these dangers bring us or our loved ones a physical harm emotional harm, and they could possibly even lead to our deaths. The fall of mankind into sin made for a very dangerous world to live in. So how are we, God's, God's adopted children, going to respond to these very real dangers in our lives? Are we going to retreat into whatever protective bubble we could create for ourselves? 
Uh, to what extent are we willing to go to minimize the risk of harm to ourselves and to our family and friends? And more importantly, will our fear of danger erode or possibly even kill our trust for God? Or will it limit or constrain our fruitfulness for the advance of the gospel of Christ Jesus? God wants to speak to our fears of danger through today's song of confidence, which is Psalm 91. So if you would uh, please go to Psalm 91 in your Bibles. We're continuing through a series in a small group of song, psalms that are called songs of confidence. Uh, when we're shaken by life's trials, when we're shaken by dangers with anxiety and hopelessness dragging uh, us into despair, these psalms are psalms for us to go to for the Lord's encouragement. So let's read uh, Psalm 91 uh, in its entirety, verses 1 through 16. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night nor the arrow that flies by day nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways." On their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent. You will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. This uh, message is entitled, Confidence in the Lord's Protection. And uh, here's what I see God saying to us through Psalm 91, and it's what I hope to expound uh, for you today. Those who take refuge in the Lord can be confident of his protection through all of life's dangers. Again, those who take refuge in the Lord can be confident of his protection through all of life's dangers. God has given us this particular psalm to address our fears of the many dangers that we face in life. And God's goal through this inspired song is to equip us with courage to confidently trust in his protection, in his deliverance from every threat of harm 
and threat of death that we face in this life. Here are the three points that I'm going to cover. The first one, uh, the Lord is the trustworthy protector. That's going to be looking at verses 1 and 2. The second point, the Lord provides complete protection. That's going to look at verses 3 through 13. And the last point is taking refuge in the Lord, which is going to look at the last set of verses, 14 through 16. So let's go ahead and, and get right into it. The Lord is the trustworthy protector. The dangers that strike the greatest fear in our hearts are the most are the ones that we're most unable to control and the ones against which we are least able to defend ourselves. Um, if we could handle the trouble unscathed, it just wouldn't be a very scary. The most frightening situations call for outside help, help that's beyond us. And our level of confidence that will make it through the trouble unharmed depends on who it is that is helping us. If you're having massive chest pains, your spouse may be a wonderful source of comfort, but you're likely to feel safest when you're rushed to the emergency room and the trained doctors and nurses begin to treat you. And when there's a prowler around the house, you'll probably feel pretty good if your husband is there to check things out, but you might feel even better, a bit more safe, if a call to the police brings them quickly to your property to engage that person before they enter into your house. These things are true because our level of confidence in our safety depends greatly on who it is who is helping us in the danger. When you're in danger, you need a person with power, sufficient power to keep you from harm. And there's no doubt in the psalmist's mind who that person is for every danger that we face. Our greatest, most certain, surest protection can only come from the Lord. The psalmist calls the Lord by four names in these first two verses, each of which helps us to see why the Lord is most able and most able to protect and is trustworthy to protect us. And that first name comes in the first verse, he who dwells in the shelter of the most high. Most high in Hebrew, that is the word Elion. Melchizedek, the king of Salem and priest, blessed Abraham in the name of God most high, El Elion in, Hebrew, in Genesis 14. Uh, there is no greater authority in all of the universe than the most high God. The most high is higher than every level of human authority, every governmental authority. And in the pantheon of false gods, most high is supreme over all of them. Interestingly, Melchizedek, in that blessing on, on, on um, Abraham, Melchizedek credits God most high with protecting Abraham, who had gone out and defeated 
um, kings and their armies that had invaded Sodom and invaded Gomorrah and had taken his nephew Lot captive. He defeated them himself with his own men and retrieved and saved his nephew. God Most High protected him. So it's natural with that in the background of his thinking for the psalmist to tell his hearers, the singers of Psalm 91, to take up permanent residence in the shelter of the Most High. Shelter serves as a cover, a, a protection from whatever threatens to harm us. Uh, when we're facing inevitable dangers in this fallen world, we need to find safe places to be. A shelter is a safe place. So in an earthquake, you will shelter, you will drop down and get next to the strongest, sturdiest, most immovable piece of furniture in that room to protect you if things happen to fall. And when you're in the woods during a storm, you should try to find a little carve out in the mountain, some strong place to shelter you from the rain and the wind. And when a hurricane is coming, you need to find high ground in a very sturdy building, windows boarded up to keep you safe. That will be your shelter. In danger, the most high is your best and safest shelter. And the second name that the psalmist gives for God is in the second part of verse 1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. The divine protector is the Almighty. That's Shaddai in Hebrew. God himself, and God himself introduced his, himself to Abraham as God Almighty, El Shaddai in Genesis 17, just before, just before, interestingly, he promised that Sarah, 92-year-old Sarah, would have a son. God Almighty is able to make impossible things happen. The one we should seek protection from in times of trouble is the one who has unlimited power to help us in that trouble and an inclination to use that power to help us, to cause good for us. When you abide in the shelter of God, the result, and when you dwell in the shelter of God, the result is that you abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Now, to abide means to remain stable or fixed in place. When you dwell in the shelter of God, you will, he will keep you there. He won't just keep you there in his shadow or in his shelter. He will keep you as you were, healthy, well. But how does a shadow help us? Uh, in film noirs, uh, those dark detective films, which I kind of like, um, a shadow is typically a very ominous sign. It's, it's a sign of some impending doom. But that's not how the image of a shadow is used in the Bible. The Bible is set in Palestine. Palestine is hot. You know, interestingly, I looked in my weather app for the weather of of Jerusalem, and I, it wouldn't give me what I was sure was 
Jerusalem in Israel. So I couldn't tell you how hot it was today in Jerusalem, but it's a hot place. So a shadow is most often a biblical image for protection, for a refuge. A shadow offers shade, which is, I'm assured, a grace of God. Because I've been to Arizona, and there just doesn't seem to be as much of God's grace there. <laughs> I like shade. A shadow offers shade, which is shelter from the potentially very harmful and even deadly heat of the sun. The shadow of a person, though, doesn't offer us very much protection, would it? And no matter how much Kit wants to hide in my shadow, she is not going to be very protected from the sun's rays. But sheltering in the expansive shadow of the Almighty will offer you all of the protection you need, not just from the sun, but from every danger. The psalmist also calls the divine protector Lord. Uh, this is actually the name by which God identified himself to Moses in Exodus 3 when, when he called Moses to lead the people of Israel out of captivity in Egypt. Moses asked for his name, and God said, his name is I am. We commonly translate it as Yahweh. In your Bibles, you will typically find it as Lord, capital L, capital O-R-D. That is the divine name, I am Yahweh. By identifying himself with this name, God was saying some very important things to Moses, and he's telling us now as well. He's saying that he is self-existent. He wasn't created by any other power or by any other being. Yahweh is self-sufficient. He has no need for which he needs to come to us or to any other to have satisfied. And Yahweh is eternal. He always has been and he always will be. There's no beginning of his days. There's no end of his days. He is self-existent, self-sufficient, eternal. Only a God like this can protect us from life's threats to our wellness and to our being. We need one who is able, and God is able. The final reference to God used by the psalmist in these first couple of verses is the term translated God, general term for God, uh, but made very personal by the psalmist who says, my God. The Most High, the Almighty, the God who introduced himself as Yahweh by this personal name, this is the psalmist's my God. One commentator writes, the supreme God is precisely the one whom the individual may call my God, as if he existed only for his sake. This is the sort of God that we have, the all-powerful one who is allowing us to see him as there for us individually. This is the one to whom the psalmist declares in verse 2, my fortress, my refuge and my fortress, my God 
in whom I trust. God is our refuge from trouble, our safe place to flee to in times of danger and threat of harm. He is our very present help in times of trouble. God is our fortress. He is the perfect version of a king's stronghold, that thick-walled, fortified uh, structure high up on a hill. It's meant to be impenetrable by the king's enemies. God is our only able and trustworthy protector. Friends, take shelter in him, and you can be confident of his protection in this fallen and danger-filled world. Second point, the Lord provides complete protection. Um, When you get insurance for your house, you want an insurance company that's able to protect you, one that is uh, well-funded, one that's trustworthy to keep the promises that are in that policy that each of you signed. But, But not only that, you want an insurance company that will go about protecting you in a manner that's effective. They're going to step in immediately when damage is caused to your property. Uh, They're going to properly assess the damage. They're going to properly determine the repairs that are needed and how much it's going to cost. They're going to quickly pay the actual contractors who do the work because it's no good if you've got a policy with them and then they don't work to protect you. Verses 3 through 13 offer up a glorious picture of how God goes about his business of protecting those who dwell in his shelter and abide in his shadow. The result is that we get to see that effectiveness, the thoroughness, the completeness of God's protection over us. And in turn, we grow in confidence that we are completely protected by the Lord. So let's look at three characteristics of God's protection for his beloved. I'm using uh, Derek Kidner, who wrote well on this psalm, his description of the Lord's uh, protection because he nailed it and I can't improve upon it. First, the Lord's protection is individual. The language, interestingly, it changes at verse 3. In verse 1, the psalmist refers in the third person to the he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High. And in verse 2, he states in the first person, I will say to the Lord. But in verses 3 through 13, the psalmist addresses us as you in its singular form. So he's addressing each of you as you read the psalm. The repeated use of you accentuates accentuates the personal address of God to each of us. It's right for us to read this psalm and hear God speaking to us directly. In this case, the individual takes precedent over the group. God's not going to delay his help for you waiting for several other people in the church, several other people in the neighborhood to have that same problem so that he can go in there and just efficiently take care of all of it at once. God isn't going to ask you, could you you just wait in line for a little while because I got a lot of calls ahead of you. God is able to address 
your needs simultaneously to his addressing the needs of every one of his saints all over the world because he is the Almighty. This also means that we must individually take refuge in the Lord. It's our job to do this. Do you want the Lord's protection from danger? Well then, teenagers, you can't rely on the faith in Christ of your parents to be your protection. You must make the Lord your dwelling place yourself. Adults, we must make the Lord our own dwelling place. So the Lord's protection is individual. Second, the Lord's protection is versatile. His protection comes in various forms. The Almighty will take action at various times in regards to the dangers that we face. He can keep protection completely away from you, as he describes in verses 9 and 10, when he says, Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague will come near your tent. So he puts his hedge around you and doesn't even let it in, preemptively striking it. It's not going to come to you. Or he may rescue you from trouble that's already come upon you as he does when he delivers you from the snare of the fowler, from the trap that the hunter sets for a bird in verse 3. So he takes action differently. His protection also has a different feel depending on how he goes about it. The Lord may give us the warm, comforting protection that the psalmist pictures in the the parent bird that hides and shelters its young under its wings, or the Almighty may provide what Derek Kidner calls the hard, unyielding strength of armor. And just as the Lord's protection comes in various forms, the Lord will protect you out of every sort of danger. Yahweh defends us against enemy attacks. The fowler setting the trap in verse 4. The soldier who launches the arrow that flies by day in verse 5. The Lord's protection is effective against dangers that are seen and unseen, those that surprise us, and others that we can seemingly uh, anticipate their coming. He covers all dangers, whether they're carefully planned by those who bring us the dangers or seemingly randomly occurring, whether the trouble endangers a specific person or it's a, a danger that cuts down hundreds or thousands at a time, whether it's natural or otherworldly, the Lord is able to protect those who belong to him. The Lord's protection is complete. And thirdly, the Lord's protection is miraculous. This should cheer us. Look at verse 11. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Angels are real spiritual creatures who stand at the Lord's ready to do as he commands. And the Lord is pleased 
to command his angels to step into danger, step into peril in order to protect you. There are several recorded instances in the scriptures in which God's angels are credited with helping. We know them. Daniel 6, an angel shuts the mouths of the lions and keeps them from harming Daniel, who is thrown into the lion's dead for the purpose, the only purpose, the only thing you could expect as an outcome, to kill him. The angel shut the lion's mouths. Twice in the book of Acts, the apostles are rescued by the Lord's angels from prison. First, when unnamed apostles are arrested uh, by the high priest in Acts 5, and then again when King Herod imprisoned Peter, and probably hearing about the seemingly mysterious prison escape in Acts 5, Herod sets four squads of soldiers to guard Peter in Acts 12, and yet the angel walks him out without any trouble. So we have every reason to believe that God provides us the same, same angelic protection. Wayne Grudem writes in his Systematic Theology, when a car suddenly swerves from hitting us, when we suddenly find footing to keep from being swept along in a raging river, should we not suspect that God has sent his angels to protect us? Oh, we very much should suspect that that is the case. Whether by angels or directly by God's own divine power, Yahweh is very able, very willing to transcend the laws of nature in order to keep his children from harm and even from death. The Almighty's protection is individual, it's versatile, and it's miraculous, which means that the Lord can preserve you through every fearful scenario that can ever come upon you. Now, does this mean, does this mean then that as the Lord's redeemed in Christ, we are invincible, that we can never suffer harm, we could never die? In a 1984 article, John Piper wrote about Psalm 91 and other songs just like it that seem to make these, these audacious, these incredible promises to God's children. And Piper writes, the psalmists proclaimed absolute safety to the saints, not because they were naive, but because under the impulse of the Holy Spirit, they felt an indomitable hope that God rules and cares for his people. Evil can't befall them. If it seems to, there must be a glorious deliverance we can't see. Will you, like the psalmist, hold to an indomitable, an unconquerable, an undefeatable hope that God really does rule over and care for his people? Well, if you are willing to hold to that hope, then whether you are out of work, facing a terrible diagnosis, whether you're in the middle of a gut-wrenching conflict with your spouse or your child or your parent, whether you're out of work and possibly even 
merely out of money, whether God has called you to minister in a situation that is quite beyond your ability, or he's called you into an opportunity to share the gospel that seems like it could cost you a relationship that you very much love. No matter what the trouble, hear the psalmist's call. Dwell in the shelter of the Most High and trust yourself to his ability and his passion. He's passionate about this, his passion to care for you. And the holy confidence that the psalmist wrote about in verses 5 and 6, these can be true for you when he writes, you will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. Final point. Taking refuge in the Lord. We're looking now at verses 14 and through 16. The, the psalmist assures us that the Lord is the only one able to protect us. And he's certain that the Lord's protection is complete, that it's thorough. But how do we go about gaining this protection from God? The psalmist has already given us the answer. Verse 1, he says, dwell in the shelter of the Most High. Okay? And in verse 9, he says, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place. But what does it mean to dwell in God's shelter when a shelter is an image of protection? What does it mean to dwell in the Lord as if he's a house that we can move into and, and live in? God himself answers these questions for us in the closing verses of the psalm. Uh, the language of the psalm changes again here in verse 14. The psalmist stops speaking. The psalmist was speaking to us earlier. Instead, now starting in verse 14, the Most High addresses us in his own voice through the lyrics of the song. We might have been suspicious of those incredible claims of God's protective actions made by the psalmist. So God steps in to affirm everything that the psalmist has written. God's confirming words in verses 14 through 16 show us how to do what is so beautifully put in images and figures and pictures by the psalmist earlier in this psalm. The first direction comes in verse 14. When the Lord says, because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. To make the Lord your dwelling place, you must hold fast to him in love. Okay, it's more straightforward than the images prior, but we still need to unpack this. The Hebrew word, I'm told by those who know Hebrew, which I don't, the Hebrew word for holds fast to me in love is the word hesach. Hesach is the word used by Moses, and this is something we need to take note of. The word used by Moses in Deuteronomy 7 and chapter 10 to describe Yahweh's devotion to his people, Israel. 
in Deuteronomy 7, 7, Moses says, it was, and he's speaking to the people, he says, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you, Asak, and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. And in uh, chapter 10, verse 15, Moses says to the people again, yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers, Isaac, and chose their offspring after them, you above all people as you are this day. The Lord decided to set his heart in love upon the people of Israel. He decided it, and he did it, and he lived it. In the same way, to set your heart in love on the Lord, that is making the Lord your dwelling place. Do you want to walk in the good of the protection of God? Then do what Jesus said was the great commandment of the law. He quoted Deuteronomy 6.5, which says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. We're to love the Lord. The second direction for how we dwell in God's shelter comes in the second half of verse 14, when God says in the song, I will protect him because he knows my name. Alan Ross commented on verse 14, writing, The name of the Lord is a summary reference to his nature and his works. And to know the name of the Lord is to have experienced it all by faith. This kind of intimate personal experience is characteristic of faithful believers, people who are walking with the Lord. To know God's name is to know what he's like and to experience his nature, to experience his characteristics, his attributes as you walk in your devotion to him and love. Over the course of a, a lifelong, uh, intimate, personal relationship with God, you're going to grow in and, and experience the majesty and beauty and loveliness of his characters. You're going to experience his power, his wisdom, his kindness, his compassion, his love, his grace, and on and on, all these wonderful perfections of God, you will experience and know as you walk with him. And having this experience with God will work. It'll cycle back to grow and expand your devotion to him in love. And then the third direction that we get from God on how to dwell in him is spoken by Yahweh in verse 15. He says, when he calls to me, I will answer and I will be with him in trouble and I will rescue him and honor him. It doesn't take too much knowing of God's name to realize that this relationship is between one who is all-powerful and another who is very weak and very flawed. God is the all-powerful one. You are the very weak and very flawed one. 
That's who I am. So when we're in trouble, we must each call out to the one who has every resource in himself to rescue us from that trouble. Not only does he possess those resources, he's inclined. Remember, he's inclined. He wants to help us because he has set his heart and love upon us. When we pray to the most, God, most high God for help, he answers us. He promises to be with us in whatever trouble we face. He promises to rescue us in some fashion, whether unscathed or with wounds that he will minister to and will use for our good and for his glory. And he commits to honoring those who are his beloved. Yahweh closes his speech to us by making one more promise uh, to the one who is devoted to him in love. The Lord says, with long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. When, when um, Adam disobeyed God in the garden, death entered into the world as a consequence to sin. But God promises in verse 91 that he will satisfy with long life each person who is devoted to him in love. Why will the believer at the end of life be satisfied with the number of days that God has granted? She'll be satisfied. He will be satisfied because God will grant not just long life, but salvation. Not salvation from every danger that leads to death, which might have been what the Israelites were looking for in Psalm 91, but salvation that swallows up death in victory. The sting of death is sin, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, let's go ahead and wrap this up uh, with some concluding thoughts. When, when Jesus fasted 40 days in the wilderness, he was tempted to sin by the devil. And here's Luke's description of the last of the temptations that Jesus faced in Luke chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. And he, that is the devil, took him, Jesus, to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not Put the Lord your God to the test. The devil's attempt to lead Jesus into rebellion against the Father was foolhardy and it was fruitless. Jesus refused to test God's promises that ran against, completely against the mission that God had assigned to him. Worship him. We could probably come on up and I'm going to finish in just a minute. All of mankind, of all of mankind, only Jesus perfectly met 
the conditions set by God in Psalm 91. Only the Son of God dwelt ever and always in the shadow of the Most High. Only Jesus made the Lord his dwelling place from the start of his life until his very last breath. Only the Divine Son truly held fast to God in love all of his days. He qualified for the protection. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. He qualified, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague will come near your tent. But although Jesus perfectly qualified for the Father's complete protection, he gladly gave up the protections promised to him by the Father in Psalm 91. Instead, he went willingly to his appointed death on the cross so that through faith in him, we could live in the good of God's absolute guarantee that he will protect our lives, not just in this fallen world, but for all of eternity. Go ahead and pray. Father, thank you, Lord God, for steeping me in Psalm 91 these past many days. Thank you, Father, for allowing my heart, my mind to meditate on the truth of your word, Lord God, to look and behold your greatness. Thank you, Father God, for ministering to my fear in these past days. Father, for looking at you, Lord God, has brought me peace. Father, we pray, Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ, that you, would, that you would have just begun a divine transaction with us, Father. That you would minister to us, each of us, individually, Lord God. Would you please help us, each, Lord God, to set our hearts in love upon you, Lord God. Would you please, Lord God, help us, Lord God, to to know and have a passion for knowing your name. Lord God, would you please, Lord God, cause us to cry out to you for help. And Father, looking to you and to the greatness of your being, Lord God, and to your promise to protect us, Father, would you please make us a confident people, not a foolhardy people, not a people that put ourselves into unnecessary danger, Lord God, but a people given to you hearing your voice, answering your call, Lord God, going about the business that you set us to, Father God, unafraid of the dangers that are there because you put us at the task. Father God, would you please, Lord God, make us effective ambassadors for Christ Jesus, unafraid of the danger of sharing Christ with others. Lord God, would you please, Lord God, make us confident, trusting in your ability to care for and protect us. And Lord, let this all be for your glory, for the greatness of your name. For it's in that name we pray. Amen.